Tonight we're going to finish up our short series of studies from the book of Revelation. This hasn't been a study about prophecy or end times so much as, as it has been what we've been just talking about is looking at the book of Revelation and, and asking ourselves, what does the book of Revelation show us about who Jesus is? Because ultimately that's what, <clears throat> even the title, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and so that's what we've been talking about. And we're going to finish this up tonight. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to begin tonight's study by a little unusually uh, because we're going to read a, a number of scriptures uh, from the Bible. And I want you to stay with me because uh, for the next few minutes, I, I promise this is going somewhere. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, and even though you'll be wondering why in the world are you reading all these, it all makes sense in the end, I, I promise. At least I hope it will. Um, but, but we're going to begin tonight with the very first verse in the Bible. Not what you would expect <clears throat> when, you're, when you're closing out a series on Revelation, but we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now I want you to flip over to the very last chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, verse 26, the very last verse. It says, So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now to the very last verse of the Old Covenant. Go to, to the last verse in the Old Testament. You, to find that, just go to Matthew and turn left, and you'll find it there. Uh, but look at Malachi Chapter 4, verse 6, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children of the fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now flip over, just probably just a page or two, you might have some maps in there or something, but look at, at, the, at the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, excuse me, the son of Abraham. Now, if you will. I want you to turn over to the final chapter of the book of Romans. Uh, the, the, it's the very first of the epistles. Now what we're going to do here with these, I'm, I'm going to read one verse from each of the, of the next successive epistles. I'll read uh, from Romans and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians, then from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians, just straight on through. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and so on. We'll just go straight through and, and every time... We're going to go to the last chapter and read either the last verse or a verse very near the end of each of the epistles from Romans moving forward toward Hebrews, actually all the way through Philemon. All right, are you ready? Romans 16.20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. 1 Corinthians 16.23 and 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. 2 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Galatians 6, 18. Brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Ephesians 6, 24. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Philippians 4, 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 
5.28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. 2 Thessalonians 3.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. 1 Timothy 6.21, by professing it, some have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. 2 Timothy 4.22, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Titus 3.15, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And then Philemon, verse 25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Are you beginning to catch a drift here? Are, 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 are you starting to get it? Is anybody beginning to sense a pattern in all those verses? Um, uh, there is something very similar, very important in all of those. Now, now let's get to the 22nd chapter of the book, book of Revelation, beginning in verse 1. Then he showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb in the middle of its street. On each side of the river there was a, the tree of life, which bore twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall be no more curse. The throne of God and the Lamb of God shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Night shall be no more. They need no lamp, nor the, light, uh, nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am he who saw and heard these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to, to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, see that you not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brothers, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And if you remember, uh, last week we talked about that. Verse 11 is talking about how, saying at the moment of judgment, our character, our nature, our sins, our past, it's fixed. And up until that moment, God gives us the opportunity of grace to be able to repent. But at the moment of judgment, that's over. Filth filthiness becomes unchangeable. Unrighteousness becomes unchangeable. Injustice becomes unchangeable. Holiness becomes unchangeable at that moment. Now, now verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to give each one according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. The spirit of the and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. In, in, in other words, uh, you could actually say, instead of just come, you could say come in, because we just read that in verse 14 that, that, uh, that they may enter through the gates. So the spirit and the bride say come in. Let him who is thirsty come. Let him who desires take the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. 
If anyone adds to these things, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and out of the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. He gripped his wife by her, by her hand, head down. The bitter tears of fearfulness and horror streamed down their faces as they looked back over their shoulder at the closed door of the Garden of Eden to face a world of horror of which they know nothing. They'd never known a moment without the intimate presence of God. They'd walked with Him and talked with Him in the cool of the evening. They had, they had looked upon God face to face in the pristine wonder of a new creation. There were no city skylines. There were no polluted rivers. There was no violence or, or thievery. There was no warfare of any kind. There were no weapons of mass dis destruction. There was no hatred or bitterness or resentment or fear or loneliness. None of the things that haunt us or hurt us or hinder us from becoming all that God wants us to be were there. And all, all that, that, that was theirs in the garden had been splendor and bliss and the joyful presence of God. Now as they looked back over their shoulders, they saw an angel standing at that gate with a flaming sword that turned, and indicating as it turned that no matter which direction they went, if they came from the north, from the east, from the west, from the south, that they were never, ever, ever going to get back in. They were not going to get past that angel. They were not going to sneak past him. They were not going to overcome him or overwhelm him. The door was closed. The idyllic bliss in which they had lived and all that they had ever known was gone. Now, clothed in shame, fearful of their future and facing the nightmare of carnality, they turn their back on the Garden of Eden and create the world as we know it. You know, there, there's an African chorus from Central Africa I heard recently. When I heard the words, I thought to myself, well, that, that just doesn't make any sense. But the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. The chorus says this, come back, Adam, and put your clothes on. Come back, Adam, put your clothes on. Come back, Adam, and put your clothes on. Come back, Adam, and come on in. And at first I heard that and I thought, well, what are they talking about? Because if they're saying, you know, come back, Adam, put your clothes on. If they're talking about the Garden of Eden, Adam was naked in the Garden of Eden. He, he, when he left is when he put his, his clothes on. But after thinking about it, suddenly I realized that the theology of it was so subtle and so sophisticated that I just completely missed it. These people in this small village created a praise course that I, with my formal education, uh, missed the point all, all completely, missed it entirely. Adam and Eve were clothed. Adam and Eve were clothed with a, with, with clothed in righteousness. The animal hides that they were given were to cover their shame. When he came back in, he was it was going to be. He was going to be clothed in righteousness, not splen righteousness and splendor and, and glory. 
And that's the invitation of God, even from the Garden of Eden. Eden, Even as he expelled them, even as he covered them with the hides of animals, even as he sent them forth and stationed an angel with a sword there, the echo of God from the very beginning was always the same. Oh, come back, Adam. Come back, Adam, and put your clothes on. Don't go naked out into this world. Come back, Adam, and put your clothes on. Come back, Adam, and come on in. The prophets spoke of it and we murdered them. The law spoke of it and we despised it. The sacrifices spoke of it and we ended them. The cross spoke of it and we failed to understand it. Even the teachings of Christ. He said, I am the way. The way where? Back in. I am the truth to return. I I am the life of what? The, the, The eternal unbroken presence of God. You know, I ask myself sometimes and maybe... And this is a good question to ask ourselves. What is the great invitation of the gospel? What's the great invitation of the gospel? Is it it just that we can be forgiven of our sins? I mean, that's a wonderful promise, but but that's really just the entryway. that's That's the lobby. That's the threshold into the building to say that that's the full household of the gospel is to miss nearly everything else. You know, I've seen a bumper sticker, maybe you've probably seen it too, but I've seen it and, it and I'll be honest, it sort of irritates me and disappoints me at the same time because I, I think that, it, and listen, I think it's put on the car with the best and the highest of motives and so I'm not judging that or judging the person, but it's just really not helpful. But the bumper sticker says this, maybe you've seen it, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And I understand the the issue of our own imperfection. I understand that we don't want to stand in front of the world and claim some kind of personal perfection that's godlike. I understand the need to be humble. I understand the need for humility in the expression of the gospel. However, that bumper sticker reads very differently from the world's perspective. I mean, here's a guy who's living in sin. He's cheating on his wife. He's beating his wife. His kids are living in fear of him. He's a drunkard. He's an alcoholic. He's living in wickedness. And when he sees that bumper sticker, he doesn't know, he doesn't know Jesus from Charlemagne. He doesn't understand the gospel. He knows nothing. That does not read to him like a statement of humility. What he sees it is, when he reads it is, Christians believe that they can live just like I live and they figured out some way to go to heaven anyway. Christians are not perfect. They're doing the same stuff that that non-Christians are, but at least they're forgiven and going to heaven unlike the rest of you heathen. Well, I, I hear Christians say it all the time. You don't have to be perfect to be a Christian. Well, that's true. I mean, if you did, we'd all be in trouble because none of us are perfect. But with that said, we need to remember sometimes that imperfection is not the goal. Uh, you know, we're, we're not saying, I'm just going to be as imperfect as I can. No, I, I think at some point or another, we have to say to ourselves and say to the world in a creative way, My goal is not just to be forgiven. My goal is to experience God's transforming power in this life. However, even that is not my full goal. My goal is to live with Him eternally. I've heard an invitation. I've received a personally engraved invitation. Come back, Adam, and put your clothes on. I think we have to say, look, I'm I'm tired of living naked. I'm tired of living in shame. The great invitation of the gospel is to come back in.
Come back into that place with God. Come back into that place of perfect peace. You know, when you look at the fall of Adam and Eve, what was the result of, their, of the fall of Adam and Eve? Well, you know, look at their first two sons, the first two first, two first born sons. One of them took a rock and pounded the brains out of the other one. And, and, and I can't help but think to myself that Adam must have said to Eve as he stood over the corpse of his son, I can't help but think he said, look what we have done. Look at the world that we've created. Murderous madness where brother kills brother. Remember the Garden of Eden. Remember the God in the cool in the evening. Remember his love. Remember the peace. Remember what it was like uh, at night to, to lay our, our, our heads down and to go to sleep under the trees and to talk to one another and, and never be afraid. Don't, don't you remember what it was like to not ever wonder if one of your own kids was going to kill one of your other sons? Do you remember that? Oh, we'll never get back in. See, the first Adam gave us death, but the second Adam, who is Jesus, gives us life. The first Adam led us out. The second Adam leads us back in. The first Adam separated us from God. The second Adam was separated from God that we may know reunion with God. The first Adam, for the first Adam, animals were slain to cover his shame. The second Adam was, was slain to cover our shame. This is the great invitation of the gospel. It's not just that you can live uh, like any other sinner and still get to go to, to heaven with the, at the last minute. That's just not the invitation of the gospel. The great invitation of the gospel is to come back in, to find life now that is filled with change and grace and truth and life, and then eternally to find the reunion with God in face-to-face, person-to-person life. Look, look how that is described here in this passage in, in Revelation. He saw a river, the, the water of life that flowed, from, from, flowed out from underneath the place where God and Jesus rule and reign forever. And, and in that river was the tree of life. And on each side there were trees that bore their fruit every month. A life of faithfulness and abundance and life and power. God does not want you to live on a starvation diet. God does not want you to live on the margins of Christianity. God doesn't want you just to, to live just eking out some spiritual existence. God wants you to feast on the fruit of the tree of life. God wants your life to be abundant, filled with joy and peace and love and all the other fruit of the Spirit. He wants you to walk in power and authority and in truth. He wants your marriage to be blessed. He wants your future to be blessed. He wants your relationships to be blessed. He wants you to know what it means to stand in the middle of the river of life and to feast on the tree of life. God wants you to know all of the, the blessings of these things. And he says, look, they that wash their robes have the right to enter into the gates of the city. You know, God's not standing at the doorway saying, no, not you. No, not you, not you. Okay, you can come in but stay out of my sight. You know, I don't want to see you for 10,000 years. You're forgiven, but I'll never forget it. That, that's not God. That's not God. That's your mother-in-law. That's, that's not God. Uh, we, we've misunderstood God, and, and we, we don't grasp the situation. When God tore open the veil in the temple from the top down, he was announcing to the world, come on back in. You don't have to live out there anymore. The way is open. When we come before him at the, at the last, 
with our heads down, our eyes covered, we're going to say, oh God, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, forgive me for the wickedness, forgive me for, for the shame, forgive me for all I've done, oh God, have mercy on me, and a voice from, from the center of all the splendor of the cosmos is going to say, lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes and look on my face. And, and, and the lion of the tribe of Judah who has the power to melt us like wax and all the power in the universe to burn up his enemies with fire will instead embrace us with the tenderness of the lamb. says that God will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more curse, no more darkness, no, no more artificial light. We're not going to have to have to light lamps or turn on light switches. We'll live in the unbroken splendor of God's glorious eternal light the promise of the book of revelation is that after everything is said and done after all of the humanity and, and history after the law after the prophets after the princes after the kings after everything after after it's all done when all of that is finished the final sight will be the saints of god going back in as we walk back into the presence of god and we're clothed no longer in the rags that cover our shame, but in the righteousness of the sons of God coming into their own. Romans 8:19 says that all of creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. I like the way J.B. Phillips translates it. He says it this way. He said the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. I love that. It's, it's like the world is on its tiptoes, uh, peeking over a wall just to trying to get a glimpse to see the, the great change that is going to come. The world longs to see what it will look like when the sons and the daughters of, Ad, of Adam come back into the bliss that they gave up when they sinned. The, the grace that he offers. You know, to come back in, here's the problem. You can't force that angel out of the way. You can't be good enough. You can't be strong enough. You can't be righteous enough. Righteous enough. There, there's only one thing that can remove that angel with his sword and let us back in, and that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the great proclamation of God throughout Scripture? It, it, it's, it's as though... He says, look, after everything, you're not listening to me. Every single epistle from Romans to Philemon ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Over and over and over and over and over again. It's as though God is saying, what's the matter with you? Why can't you, why can't you hear this? You know, some have made God the problem in their lives, but God's not the problem. He's the solution. Some have made God the, you know, they see him as the enemy, but he's willing to make his tabernacle with me. He wants to move in with me, to live with me, and he wants to be a friend. God is not the impediment. God is the way. But what does this grace that we're talking about, what does the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ mean? Well, it doesn't just mean I'll forgive you. It means I'm on your side. 
It means I, I love you. I cherish you. I want you to feast at this tree. I want you to drink from the water of life. I want you to know the splendor in your life. You know, I think there are so, so many church-going folk who live in such spiritual poverty. They never know real joy. They, they never walk in peace. They never have a dream. They never envision anything. They never try anything. They, they never know the abundance and the blessing and the power of God. They, they kind of live in a miserly, poverty-stricken life while God is just trying to say, let me bless you. Let me strengthen you. Let me give you joy. Come, on, come in, he's saying to us. There was an article written a number of years ago. You may have seen this. There, there are other probably many articles similar to this, but there was a, a woman who died in a, living in a little walk-up tenement flat in New York City. She had no family. She had no friends. There was no one to pay for a cemetery plot or to pay for a funeral. And so she was buried in New York City's Potter's Field, just a cemetery for the, for the indigent. She, she died, and the, the coroner said that she died due to a combination of exposure and malnutrition because it was in the winter and she had no heat so it was exposure and she hadn't been eating properly and then she was buried in the potter, potter's field well later they uh sent the cleanup crews from the city to go into her little shabby apartment to clean it out and when they went in there they they found newspapers stacked from floor to ceiling all over the apartment i mean everywhere there were there were just certain little pathways through all of it where she could walk from, from the bed to the bathroom and back out to the front door. And the rest of the apartment was just filled with new paper, newspapers from the floor all the way to the ceiling. Well, they gathered them up and they, and, and they, st they started carrying them down to the garbage truck. And the, the first guy who was going down the stairs lost his balance and he, and he dropped them when he lost his balance. And when the newspapers uh, fluttered down the stairs, out from beneath the pages of every single newspaper came pressed dollars. And in that apartment, they found $1.8 million. $1.8 $8 million pressed between the pages of newspapers stacked from the floor to the ceiling in a walk-up tenement flat. Yet she died of exposure because she, what was, wasn't, weren't, she wasn't paying the bill for the heat, so she had no heat and malnutrition because she wasn't buying food. You know, I believe there are church-going people who live their entire lives in starvation, malnutrition, and exposure with the riches and the blessings and the promises of God's grace open before them. And God is saying the whole time, come in, come in, feast at the table I prepared for you. Let me anoint your head with oil. Let me wash your feet. Let, let me lay you down in green pastures. Let me lead you to, to still waters. Let me bless you. Let me prosper you. Let me defend you. Let me change you. Let me alter the way you think. Let me deliver you. Let me break bondages. Let me tear down strongholds. But, but yet we choose poverty, malnutrition, and, and, and exposure and God the whole time is saying come back Adam put your clothes on don't go naked in this world it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Look at that prepositional phrase, with you. The grace of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ is not just some vague sort of electrical field that's just floating through the universe and that you just put your hand up so you can, you know, gather a little bit of it. It's not like Star Wars and the force be with you and crazy stuff like that. It says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God is operative, acting, moving. God is the greatest cheerleader in your life. Some of you think that God is against you, but he is not. He is on your side. He is cheering for you. He wants the best for you. God is the cheerleader of the human race. There's not a drunk in the world, some drunk face down in the gutter of Hell's Kitchen in New York, lying in his own vomit, the world passing by on one side and the church passing by on the other. But Jesus, I can tell you, is right down in the gutter saying, come on, son, come on, get up. You can still make it back in. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, moving you, teaching you, informing you, calling you, beckoning you. Why do you think every single epistle from Romans to Philemon says grace, 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 grace? It's as though God says, all you hear is the law. All you hear is your problems. All you hear is marginal Christianity. And I want to give you life. I want, to, I want you to stand in the middle of the river and I want you to feast from the tree of life. I want you to bear the, the fruit of the Spirit in your life like you've never imagined. I want you to know it all. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, all of them. I want to fill your life with wonders beyond anything you've ever dared to imagine. And, and yet you are content to live on the front porch huddling in the cold against the elements while I'm constantly beckoning you. Come in, come in, come all the way in, come further in, come higher up. That's the great declaration of the gospel. The great declaration of the gospel is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You know, then at the end of everything in this book of Revelation, after we've seen the beast who imposes his mark upon his followers, you know, 666, and we get so weird about that. We, we do. We just, we just get goofy. You know, you, you know, you can trivialize anything until it loses its meaning. You know what I mean? And, and you can make nonsense out of it. Maybe, maybe it's, you heard about there's this Bible school who, whose regional dial-in code was going to be 666, and they freaked out, and they, and they insisted that the telephone company change it because they didn't want people calling the, the Bible school to have to dial 666. I mean, uh, we get so superstitious about the number, and then, you know, it's just, can I just say three things, okay? One, it made them look silly. The eyes of the world are saying, okay, there are people starving to death, and you're worried about your phone number being 666. Uh, you know, two, it trivialized the issue of the mark of the beast because it's not about a, a number 666. It's about the beast and, and, and taking on uh, support of the beast and saying, this is what I want. This is who I'm worshiping. And third, I just want to say they missed a great marketing opportunity. 
I, I would have gone on national television and said, dial 666 and you'll find 777. You know, I'd be like, right here, we're right here waiting for you. Dial 666 and you'll find heaven. I mean, that's, they missed it. I, was, I, think they, I think they acted silly and over it and it looked foolish to the world. But, you know, we talk about the mark of the beast. And I'm saying this because we want to talk about what God says in this last chapter that we just read. But the mark of the beast is not necessarily what we think it is. We don't really know. That's the problem with prophecy. We have all these ideas and we think we know, but we don't really know. Anybody that, that goes through the book of Revelation and teaches it and says, this is definitely this, be really careful because there's just very little in there that we can be absolutely definite about. The only way you can know certain, uh, with certainty about prophecy is after the prophecy has been fulfilled. That's why we can look back on all the prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament and we can be certain about those prophecies because now we can say, and here's how it was fulfilled. So that's the problem. So it may not necessarily be what we think it is. Everybody wants to make it a computer chip that, you know, it's going to be in your forehead or in the back of your hand. Um, but, but listen, it, um, the mark of the beast is where the world makes you look more like Satan than like God. That's what it's really all about. The mark of the beast and all of its implications. I mean, even if it is that, even if it is a computer chip, what if it is that? Still, it's going to be about a change in the, in the priorities of your life and, the, and your values and what you want. And I, I listen, I have seen that in, in the backroom politics of local churches where power brokers gut churches and destroy the lives of young ministers and destroy the move of the Holy Spirit through manipulation, domination, and control, all the while with a Bible open on the table in front of them. They, they say to themselves, we'll never have the mark of the beast on us. They've already got it. They may not have taken the mark, but listen, they stink of the devil. It's, the trans, it's transparent on their foreheads. It glows in the dark. 666 is the character and the nature of worldliness. But God says when you come in, this is what I want to say. When God says when you come in, I will put my mark on your forehead. He said he was going to write his name on our forehead. That's his mark. He's saying, you'll look, you'll look like me. I'll give you light and life. Let me just ask you, have you ever known anybody that just, you just felt like if you took hold of the skin on their forehead and pulled it down, that behind there you would find Jesus? You know, have you ever known somebody so sweet, so wonderful, so holy, just so precious? I've known a few of those people in my life. I remember one sweet lady that was just so precious, so sweet, so, so wonderful. She, she was without a doubt one of the happiest, most joyful, most peaceful, peaceful Christians I've ever known. Her name is Phyllis, Phyllis Hicks. She's with the Lord now. Um, but uh, I, I've never known anybody quite like her. She had married a preacher uh, whose previous wife, wife had passed away. And he had uh, three, I think three children. Anyway, it doesn't matter the number. But, but she married him and she raised his kids like they were her own. They loved, she loved them like they were her own. They loved her deeply. But I remember her husband telling me a story one time of a time when the family had gathered together. You know, maybe Thanksgiving or something like that where everybody was there. And this was after the kids were all grown and they had kids of their own. And 
they were all in this great conversation. And you know what it's like when the family gets together and everybody's remembering things and laughing and joking. And well, they were doing that and they were on this kick where they were confessing about all the things they had done as children that nobody else knew about. Well, finally, one of the grown children after all of this and they looked at Phyllis and they said, what's the worst thing you've ever done, Phyllis? And she said, oh, oh I, I, don't want, I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk about that. And of course, you know, that just made all the kids like, well, now we really want to know. So they just kept pressed in on her and they said, come on, we've all confessed. Come on, now it's your turn. Come on, Phyllis, tell us, tell us, please tell us. So finally, they kept pressing her, kept pressing her until finally she said, okay, all right, well, one time when I was a teenager, I went up the down escalator. <laughs> and, and we laugh, but that's the story I want. That's the story I want for my, for my daughters. I want them at the end. Of, she was, you know, well into her 70s by that time in her life. I want them to be able to look back in their life and say, you know, I've, I've never gone through deep sin. I've never strayed far from God. I've walked with him my, my whole life, basically. That's all I remember. That's the testimony I want for them. And I, I just, you know, got the feeling at times that if I went up to her and just peeled the skin off that, that Jesus' eyes would twinkle out. You know, surprise, here I am. Listen, I, I don't know all that it means here when God says my mark will, will be on their foreheads, but I think it, at least it means that when we come in and we feast on the tree of life and we walk in His grace and in His truth, that we start to look like God. We start to look like Jesus. We start to sound like Jesus. We begin to, we begin to become more like Him. He, he wants us living in joy and liberty and fulfillment in life. He doesn't want us living outside in the cold of sin or, or, the, or the cold of law either. You know, I think we sometimes so utterly and totally miss the splendor of grace, the splendor of being His child. And forever I am. You know, some kid does something that his dad doesn't like. A good father, a righteous father, a holy father, a loving father. He's not standing there looking at that kid saying, Okay, I told you not to eat that cookie and you ate it. You're out of here. We're not going to have a five-year-old like that around here. Hit the road, sport. You know. That, that would be a horrible father. That, that would actually be a terrifying father. But you know what we do? We do this. We kind of act that way. We think that God's that way because we create this performance-oriented thing and we labor to try to make it. We put our shoulder to the, to the wheel and our nose to the grindstone and we say, this year, I'll make God love me if it kills me. Only the thing is, it, it, it'll kill you. If it, if it doesn't put you, it'll kill you. If it doesn't do that, it'll put you into a religious loony bin. You know, you'll be in there wearing a straight jacket, rocking back and forth, humming, Jesus loves me. Because there's no grace in it. There's no life in it. There's no liberty in it. There's, that is not what God has for us. It's not what he promises us. It's not what the second, 22nd chapter of Revelation means. It means 
I want to take away the look of satanic carnality in your face. I want to rub it out and I want to replace it with my face. I want to take away all of the bondage and the law and the evil and the hurt and the pain and the neurosis. And I want to give you a life of liberty and of joy and of peace. He's saying, I want to do this because I love you, because I like you, because I want to be with you. God's not standing at the door with his nose in the air, you know, like, oh, look at them. Well, at least they're covered in the blood. I can't stand the sight of them, miserable, pathetic little worms. Here I am living in heaven with the angels in splendor. I'm walking streets of gold. Here I am in perfection. And these miserable, wretched sons and daughters of Adam come around. Blah. Well, let them in. Just clean them up. That's not God. That's not God. God's going into every crack house and every whorehouse in the world saying, I love you. I want you to be with me. I don't want you to live like this. I don't want you to, to debauch yourself. I don't want you to ruin yourself. I don't want you to die like this. I mean, do you think God delights when somebody dies from some sexually transmitted disease? God's not, God's standing at the door saying, oh son, don't do this. Don't go down this path. He's been there for years. God is moving up and down every street at, at every drive-by shooting. And he's saying, don't draw that gun. Don't draw that gun. Don't pull that trigger. Grace is operating in that moment. He's in every tank in Ukraine right now saying, I love you. I want you to want to be with you. He's in every dorm room in America. He's, he's with every college student in America. He's with those that are just trying to make it. They're just trying to figure it out in this life. He's with those who are bar hopping and living in sin and breaking every rule. And God is saying, I love you. I like you. I want to be with you. And I want you to be with me. Not just today, not just tonight, not just this moment, but for eternity, forever. I want you to come in. I want you to come back in and discover everything that Adam gave away. I want you to, your, your, your face to glow with the light of my countenance. I want your heart to be clean. I want your life to be free. God's not leaning over the pulpit of heaven saying, obey the rules. He's saying, my grace is sufficient. My grace is with you. Why do you think people repeat things over and over and over and over again? There's some in the room who would say, well, it's because whoever I'm talking to won't listen. <laughs> but it's really, it's because for some reason or another, it's important to them. That's why they keep repeating it. I mean, why did your mother say to you when you're growing up, clean up your room, clean up your room. Clean up your room. Clean up your room. Clean up the flaming room. Right? Why did your mother say that day after day after day after day? Well, it was because she had this confused idea that you would grow up and actually keep your room clean after you moved out. She was hoping that it would be important to you because it's important to her. Why do you think I tell my wife that I love her over and over and over again? You know, uh, you've heard the story about the guy who's, who said, well, do you tell your wife that you love her? And he said, no. I told her on the wedding day, if it changes, I'll let her know. Well, it's a funny joke, but it's a horrible way to try to build a marriage. I tell my wife over and over again that I love her. Part of it is because, frankly, I want her to say it back, right? 
Every time I say it, it's a fishing expedition, right? I'm just looking for that return. And if there's a delay there, I'm like on pins and needles, that sort of thing, you know. But beyond that, however, I say it because it's important to me that she know it. It's important to me that she knows that I love her. So I repeat it over and over and over and over again because it's crucial to the character and nature of our relationship. And I cannot count on the fact that she'll get it after I say it once. I have to repeat it. I have to find fresh ways to say it. So God says in the garden, the seed of the woman will come. He'll bruise the serpent's head. And God said through Isaiah the prophet, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. He said to the prophet Jeremiah, he, he, said, he said to tell them, I will put my law within them and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He, he said, my law is no longer hanging over them like a stone, but it'll be on the flesh of their interior being. I'll change them from the inside out. It's the reason at the end of, of the whole book of Genesis. See, Genesis begins so hopefully, so full of so full of potential. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then it ends in a coffin in Egypt. But God says, that's not the end of the story. Then at the end of the entire Old Testament, after David, after all of the prophets, after the Psalms, after the Proverbs, after the covenant, after Moses, after Abraham, after everything is said and done, the whole Old Testament ends with a curse on the earth. The same curse that infested the ground when Adam fell is still there at the end of the book of Malachi. And that's the reason God says that's not the end of the story. Read on. The next book, the very next verse, says this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of a whole new story. That's the reason why that God tells us who Jesus is. It's the reason why we see Him loving children and healing the sick and casting out demons. That's the reason we see Him on the cross. That's the reason we see Him rising from the dead. That's the reason we see Him ascending to the right hand of the Father Almighty. It's the reason for the whole book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not to educate us about end time prophecy. It is to reveal to us who Jesus is in our lives now and forever. It's not a book about monsters. It's not a book of scary, you know, scariness and demons. It is a book of hope. It is a book of life. And above all, it is a book of grace. So that every single epistle from Romans through Philemon ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. At the end of the whole thing, God says, I've said this and said this and said this. And I don't think, I still don't think you're getting it. You fasten in on the beast. You've tried to interpret what the the second toe on his left foot means. You've gotten hung up on all the little details, but you're not getting the point. You know what? I'm glad that the book of Revelation does not end by saying, and there's a beast. 
I'm glad that the book of Revelation doesn't end with there shall be war and famine and pestilence. I'm glad that the book of Revelation doesn't end with you've done wrong, you've sinned, and you're going to hell, and maybe even God is a little happy about that. I'm so glad that the book of Revelation ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. God's last word on the subject is not do better. God's last word on the subject is not pull, pull your socks up and get back in the game, you big sissy. God's last word on the subject is not behave or I'll kill you. He deals with judgment. He deals with the great white throne. We talked about that last week. He deals with all of that. But that's not where he ends. He ends with grace. The beginning and the end of all of it. The grace of God that says, come on, Adam, come back home. Put your clothes on. Let me clothe you with righteousness. Let me show you uh, what, what life is like without all of the fear and heartache and the pain. Let me feed you. Let you let, I want you to feast on, this, on the, the tree of, of life and drink from the water of life. Come on home, Adam. Come back in, Adam. Put your clothes on. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we are, we are amazed at your grace. We... we, we we kind of grasp it a little bit, but God, I just honestly think it's just, it's really beyond our human comprehension. It's beyond a, the ability, at least of my little pea brain, to, to wrap around the concept of this grace and, and, and why you would do this. Lord, I, I don't think I'll ever understand why you have grace toward me. But Lord, I am here just to say thank you for that grace. Thank you for making a way for me to come back into your presence. Adam and Eve brought sin into this world. They barred the way back to you and there was no going back. There was no way through that door. Can't get through that gate. But because of the blood of Jesus and because of the grace that you've offered, we can come back in. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to, to look at our lives and Lord, if we're, if we're, if we're, if we, if we're Christian, but Lord, we're we're just living in this spiritual poverty. I pray, God, that you'd help us to realize that, that the riches in Christ are immeasurable and that you want to bless us, God. It goes, it goes way beyond just physical blessing, God, but you want to lead us into new places. You want us to know you. You want us, Lord God, to find peace that really does pass understanding. You want us to find a peace that the world can't give and the world can't take away. You want us to find joy. You want us, want us to find real love. Lord, help us to find all of those things and to press into you. Lord, if we find it, it's all going to be because of your grace. And we know that. So thank you. Thank you again for your grace that beckons us to come home, to come back in. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.